0: reading Revelation 21, verses 2 through 8, 9, not, excuse me, 9, 9 through 21. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come, I will show you the woman, the Lamb's bride. So he transported me in spirit to a great and high mountain showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the splendor of God. Her radiance was similar to a most precious stone, like a crystalline jasper stone. She had a tremendous high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates, twelve angels and names inscribed, namely the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel looking from the east, three gates, and from the north, three gates, and from the south, three gates, and from the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now he who spoke with me had a measure, a golden reed, so that he might measure the city and her gates. The city is laid out as a square, that is, her length is equal to her width. So he measured the city with the reed at 12,012 stadia. Her length and width and height are equal. And he measured her wall, 144 cubits, the measure of a man, which is of an angel. And the material of her wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation had jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each individual gate was composed of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass." Father, as we consider the glories of heaven, there is so much about it that we do not understand, but I pray that that which I do describe would be faithful to your word, that it would draw out the uh, admiration of this your people and the anticipation of this your people for the wonders and the glories of heaven. Father, may you continue to receive our worship as we uh, think through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we began looking at some of the awesome things that are in store for the church, both in history as well as in eternity. And the first vision we saw takes place chronologically after the previous chapter. It occurs in eternity, right after Judgment Day, showing John what Jesus had achieved over the previous thousands of years. Nothing of the curse will remain. In eternity, there will be no more pain, sorrow, tears, death, or any other aspect of the curse, and there was going to be a vast multitude that will be saved. And this new world is so different from the world that we are experiencing that John struggles to communicate what it is like. For example in verse 11 he says that the city will be like a jasper stone in some ways and yet it's different in that it is clear as crystal. Jasper down here on earth is never clear as crystal. Okay, it's, uh, it's um, yellowish, uh, sometimes it has some other colors mixed in, but it's not clear as crystal, it's opaque. So he compares it to things in this world but makes it clear it is unlike anything that we have seen before. I think it's kind of a glorified jasper stone. Likewise in verse 21 he says the street of the city will be made with pure gold and the gold will be transparent like glass. Well there ain't any gold on this planet right now that is transparent like glass. Some kind of a glorified gold that he is talking about there. So even the materials used in the city are in a glorified state, and so it's hard to describe the new Jerusalem with descriptors that are taken from this world that we are experiencing. So he's, he's struggling to communicate that, and it really ought not to be a surprise to us because 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, Phil Kaiser cannot even imagine, let alone adequately describe the glories of heaven. That's exactly what he's saying. No one can even imagine, let alone adequately describe the things that are in heaven. It is simply not possible with our current language. And I think it is this otherworldliness of the New Jerusalem that has led to the controversy of whether this is a literal city or whether it is purely symbols. There is no city. It's purely symbolic of the the bride. Now, originally, just for fun, I was going to list for you 11 slam-dunk arguments as to why this couldn't possibly be literal. This has to be only symbolic, and then immediately follow it with seven slam-dunk arguments as to why this has to be literal, and it cannot be symbolic. And... um, I decided, no, this is going to drag the sermon out way too long. So I I ditched that and started over. But I mention that because you can give really good arguments for both sides. Now, as you know, throughout this book of Revelation, I have not pitted literal against the symbolic. I hold both together almost always at the same time. And I've mentioned many times the rock that Moses smote was a literal rock, and yet it was a symbol. It was a symbol of Christ and of the Holy Spirit. And so this is an actual city, but it also symbolizes the bride. Now, I will admit that this otherworldly magnificence is so different that the concept of literal is maybe a meaningless term. All I'm going to say is, in some sense, it is an actual city that symbolizes the bride of Christ. It symbolizes the church. And... Um, Some of the features of it do defy explanation, but we're picking up at verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come, I will show you the woman, the Lamb's bride. So he transported me in spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the splendor of God. And commentators point out that almost identical language is used in chapter 17 to describe a different woman. And it is the false bride. It's the harlot city of Jerusalem. The harlot symbolizes the people who claim to be in covenant with God, but really were not. And so this language that he is using is deliberately setting up comparisons and contrasts between two women. Similarities are, First, in both chapters, it was one of the angels who had just poured out the uh, seven last plagues that came to John with the vision. S- Second, in both chapters, the angel spoke to John. In both chapters, the angel says, come, I will show you. In both chapters, the angel then transported him in spirit to a place where he could see a little bit better. And in both chapters, the angel shows him a woman. Where they differ is in chapter 17, he's taken in the spirit to a wilderness. Here, he's taken to a high mountain. In chapter 17, he's shown the earthly Jerusalem. Here, he is shown the heavenly Jerusalem. In chapter 17, Jerusalem is symbolized by a harlot who is a persecutor of the saints, who is incredibly wicked, filled with blasphemy. Here, the new Jerusalem symbolizes the bride of Jesus who is pure and has no evil. In chapter 17 the harlot is in covenant with Rome and rides upon the beast using the beast to persecute his saints and uh, here the bride is in covenant to and married to Jesus forever. Now, for Jewish Christians, remember this whole book was addressed to Jewish Christians in the first century who were being persecuted, pressured by their families to abandon Christianity and rejoin the synagogues. They were receiving enormous persecution, and this would have been an incredible motivator to not compromise. Uh, They would be giving up the incomparable beauty and life of the New Jerusalem for the demonic evil and death of the Old Jerusalem. Verse 9 says, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, why does he mention the plagues? Because again, he's, he's making this contrast that whereas the harlot had all of those plagues poured out upon her, this bride is completely protected from those plagues. She did not receive God's wrath at all. She was secure in her husband and in her mansion. Because she was seated with Christ in the heavenlies, she's far above the wrath that is poured out. The angel says, Come, I will show you the woman, uh, the Lamb's bride. Now, the word for woman could be rendered as wife, like the New King James does. And I think it should be uh, because this is now in eternity. From 8070 to Judgment Day was the marriage supper of the Lamb. Remember, we looked in the Gospels and saw that throughout this current. Uh, period of time, the king is sending out his servants to say, "Look, we need more people in the banquet hall. They're already eating, but we need to invite, go out into the highways and the byways, and keep inviting them uh, into uh, the feast." So every time we celebrate the Lord's table here, uh, we are partaking of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, that that um, he told us to eat and drink until he comes. But now that the banquet is finished it's time for the marriage to be consummated. Now, obviously, it's not a literal consummation of the marriage because the church is, the, is what is symbolized. We're the literal uh, symbols, okay? We are, our marriages symbolize what the bride and what the church and Jesus uh, should be in relationship to each other. But it is a figure to show that in eternity we will experience closeness, to God and to Jesus Christ, such as we have never experienced on earth before. And though there is no sin in eternity, he's going to continue to be recognized as the Lamb. Throughout eternity, she will know, this is a husband that laid down his life for me. Verse 10 says, So he transported me in spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, even though John was on an incredibly tall mountain, this New Jerusalem towered way, way above Him. Um, off into space. It's so far exalted above the highest mountains that we looked last week, at how at, it, it goes way beyond even our atmosphere, out into outer space. So in this verse, we, we are saying that God exalts the bride. He calls the bride great. He calls the bride holy. He says that the bride is coming down from Him. Okay, And we looked at each of those expressions last week, so I won't repeat what they mean today, but it's clear God himself created uh, her into the incredible beauty that she is. And according to Ephesians, God started that preparation of his bride, his son's bride, here now in history. Your sanctification is a part of that process of making the bride beautiful. It says in Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives just as christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish well that's finally happened on this first day of eternity and he's going to go on to describe her beauty in terms that are difficult to fathom. But what I find even more astonishing than all of the symbolic and literal beauty of the gates and the walls that we're going to be looking at is um, the first phrase of verse 11, having the glory of God. The bride herself has the glory of God. I want us to think about that, not just slide over it quickly like most commentaries do, This is an absolutely astounding statement. I'm going to explain to you why it is astounding. Isaiah 42, verse 8, God says this, I am Jehovah, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. Let me read from Douglas Kelly at length because I think he captures the astonishing nature of this statement quite well. He says, God firmly says through Isaiah, That he does not give his glory to another, for his glory is so essential to his deity that it is not given to another, that is, to anyone less than God. Yet wonder of all wonders, after Christ has come and done his glorious work, we are told in verses 10 through 11, The holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. What a stunning contrast. God says in Isaiah 42, I do not give my glory to another, and now that great city, the holy Jerusalem, is full of the glory of God. God has given His own divine glory to the church. This phrase should strike you as being almost as impossible as it is for God to justify, as a perfect judge, to justify a guilty sinner. In Exodus 23, 7, God says, I will not justify the wicked. Yet in Romans 4, verse 5, Paul makes the astounding promise that when the wicked put their faith in Christ as their substitute, quote, God justifies the ungodly. He says he won't do it over here, and now because of what Jesus has done, he says he will justify the ungodly, that God could justify and declare guilt, uh, not guilty, those who are guilty is a miracle that really is bound up in everything, his whole plan of salvation from eternity past, election, the incarnation, Christ's perfect life, his death, his substitutionary atonement, his resurrection. Uh, imputation of our sins to Him, the imputation of His righteousness to us, uh, our union with Him, our identity being forever bound up in Him. This is what Colossians 3, verse 3 says. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Where is your life hidden? It's hidden with Christ in God. That is how God can give His glory to the bride. She is united to Christ, the perfect God-man, and through Christ, she's united to God. I don't know about you, but when I meditate on things like this, it just sends shivers down my spine. I just stand in awe at the, the incredible plan that God made from eternity past. The more you meditate on the wonders of salvation, the more it makes you love Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, really, when you think about it, we could have just as easily been born into the harlot, the corporate harlot, and been destined for hell. But because the Father sent the Son, and because the Son suffered the Father's wrath, and because the Holy Spirit pulled us up out of the sewer and washed us off in salvation, He could make us a part of this glorious, glorious bride. Dennis Johnson, uh, my former professor at Westminster, pulls together the strands of glory throughout this chapter, rather well in one paragraph and i want to read it to you so you can appreciate the miracle of god's glory in us he says dazzling light is the first impression that it prints itself on john's consciousness for the city has the glory of god and shines with the brilliance of a costly crystal clear jasper semi-precious jasper as it appears in nature may have a mustard or gold color but it is opaque not crystal clear John is straining the limits of his hearer's experience to try to communicate a beauty that lies beyond the capacity of the first earth. Light will pervade his description, as will the loveliness of Jasper and other precious stones and the transparency of crystal. In other words, the radiance that John once saw emanating from the throne of God, whose glory appeared like Jasper and Sardius in chapter four, verse three, now permeates the city. The Lord of glory indwells his people and floods his new community with the beauty of his holiness. Brothers and sisters, that is your destiny in Jesus Christ. Uh, And um, uh, it's the destiny that we should love. This is the church that Jesus loves. And it ought to make us realize, as this is all that God in Christ has poured into his bride, we ought not to treat the church of Jesus Christ lightly. We need to love that which Christ loves. But if that is the astonishing reality of heaven and eternity, we should be pressing into that uh, reality uh, more and more now, that glory. That's our destiny, our identity. We should long for God's glory. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul shows how Moses, even under the first covenant, radiated God's glory so much that his face shone. That was just by being in God's presence, and he concludes with this. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. And then he goes on to say, unfortunately, there are some people who have a veil over their eyes and they simply cannot see God's glory. And he says, it's totally unnecessary in the New Covenant, totally unnecessary. He goes on to say, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord." So the point is that just as every description of the New Jerusalem that we looked at last week should be kind of like a magnetic pull upon our lives, we should long for God's glory, more and more of God's glory right now. Moses begged God, please show me your glory. Exodus 33, verse 18, and Moorcraft, in an amazing sermon on that verse, says that really is the heart of revival, longing for God's glory. And um, we, we, we really should, that's, uh, that, that's the heart of what Christianity means, is being transformed from glory to glory by the image of, into the image of Christ. Now, this passage makes clear that all the saints, from Adam all the way through to the end of history are going to be in this New Jerusalem and share in that glory. And this is such an important corrective to a philosophy out there that I grew up with called dispensationalism that denies. They put such a rift between Israel and the church that they deny that uh, people who are saved amongst Israelites will even be a part of the Bride of Christ. That's how much they separate them. Now there are so many indicators in this uh, chapter, the New Jerusalem is a symbol of the bride and is called the bride, but I want you to notice the she at the beginning of verse 12, and actually the repeated use of she and her all the way through this whole chapter. Okay, He, he had said, Come, I will show you the woman, the Lamb's bride, and he showed uh, John the New Jerusalem. So as we saw last week, the city is the bride and the bride is the city. It, at very minimum, it is a symbol of the bride. So as I read verses 12 through 13, just keep in mind that her and that she. She had a tremendous high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels and names inscribed, namely the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, looking from the east three gates, and from the north three gates, and from the south three gates, and from the west three gates. It's pretty clear that Israel is a part of the bride. And I'll talk about that more in a a little bit. But there are a couple of other details I also want you to notice. I want you to notice that there is going to be geographical direction in eternity. There's going to be a north and a south and an east and a west. And this is actually perhaps one of a number of arguments that I uh, was wrong a couple of weeks ago. And I said that there may not be a moon or a sun in the new creation. Uh, this is uh, kind of a shout-out to Mark Nelson who showed me a, a verse that says, hey, the sun and the moon are eternal as well. It's uh, Psalm 89, 36 through 37. Referring to Jesus, it says, His seed shall endure forever, and His throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. And so Mark pointed out that technically, if you look at chapter 22, verse 23, it says that the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to light it because God was the light within that city, but He didn't say what would happen to the rest of the planet. And if you think of that city, how massive it is, 1,400 to 1,500 miles wide and long and tall, if you're in the middle of that, it's going to be pitch dark. You're going to have to have some kind of a light Uh, system within there, and so God is the indirect light within that city, and maybe uh, the crystalline structure of that um, city is going to radiate light out from the throne. I don't know how it's all going to work, but God is the light for the city because there is no sun inside that city, okay? So I I appreciate that correction. Anyway, there's an east, there's a west, there's perhaps a north and the south pole, Later in verse 25, you'll say that these gates are never under any circumstances closed again. Perhaps they were closed in history on occasion, we're not told, but not in eternity. Now, will there be literal names written on literal gates and names of apostles on literal foundations? I don't see any reason why not, though I can't be absolutely dogmatic. But what the literal symbolizes, that's so important, what it symbolizes is that the Old Testament saints, as represented by the patriarchs, are part of the church. They're part of the bride. They're in the New Jerusalem together with the Apostles and the New Testament saints. This is as strong a repudiation of the heart of of dispensational theology as you could get. Um, I've got a book on my shelf um, by Charles Ryrie called Dispensationalism Today and in there he quotes Lewis Ferry Chafer in order to define what is at the heart of dispensationalism. You're not a dispensationalist if you reject this statement. Here's what he says. The dispensationalist believes that throughout the ages God is pursuing two distinct purposes, one related to earth with earthly people and earthly objectives involved, which is Judaism, while the other is related to heaven with heavenly people and heavenly objectives involved, which is Christianity. So. Consistent, not all dispensationalists are consistent, but consistent dispensationalists hold to the blasphemy that we don't need to convert uh, Jews today to Christianity because they have their own religion under God and it's two different ways. And so they speak of two different peoples, two different purposes, two different destinies, um, even two different revelations, many of them uh, hold to. So, Uh, This passage here I think very very clearly affirms that the 12 patriarchs Representing the Old Testament people the 12 apostles representing the New Testament people are part of the bride have the same Salvation the same destiny the same purpose and the same focus and actually since foundations refer to revelation They've got the same revelation. They've got the same Bible there's only one people of God and that's symbolized by there being one temple one vineyard one olive tree and one New Jerusalem okay verse 15 says "And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb Greek word for foundations is used in Hebrews eleven ten to refer to the New Jerusalem again <coughs> and in Ephesians 2 it refers uh, there to that building he he talks about Jew and Gentile being in the same kingdom same building um, And he uses that image of foundations of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone to say, hey, the Bible is the revelation upon which um, uh, they, they are founded. So that's what that is about. Just as there is one people, there is one revelation. Now, continuing on, we see that this city has an exact size, implying that the church has an exact size. No more, no less. As our confession says, that there is a certain number of elect cannot be added to, cannot be subtracted from. Now he who spoke with me had a measure, a golden reed, so that he might measure the city and her gates. The city is laid out as a square, that is, her length is equal to her width, so he measured the city with the reed at 12,012 stadia. Her length and width and height are equal, and he measured her wall, 144 cubits, the measure of a man, which is of an angel. Now I'll just mention very briefly that Your versions don't have 12,012, they just probably have uh, 12,000 even, but 12,012 is in the majority of Greek manuscripts, it's also in 2 out of 3 independent transmissions, which is an even stronger point, it's in the ecclesiastical text, it's what uh, Pickering has in his text, so that's what I'm going with here. And if you think about it, there really is no textual rule for why the 12 would um, be added in accidentally, but there's uh, plenty of reasons why it could have been slipped out or taken out, rounded out, by an unscrupulous scribe. Now, while this is a more precise measurement, and even though it maintains multiples of 12, all of the symbolism that's there, the exact figure shows it's not a rounded number. This is an actual measurement of an actual city. Now, if Jesus went to prepare a place for his people after his resurrection, and if Hebrews 13 14 says that it was about to come, and he said that in 8066, then that means that people have been living in the New Jerusalem, which is currently in heaven, since 8070 and actually before that. I think they were living in the New Jerusalem while it was under construction. Once it is full, it will come to earth. In eternity, People can come and go from the city onto the planet. But right now, when you die, that's the only place you can go. You go to the new Jerusalem. So once the new Jerusalem above is filled, no more will be saved. It will signal the end of history. So if the city represents the entire bride, the dimensions of this city indicate that the saved will number at least in the trillions. I don't think it could possibly be less than trillions of people. But perhaps in the quadrillions and even upwards of one quintillion now, I doubt it'll be one quintillion some people have estimated that um, but that would only it wouldn't give you a mansion it would only give you a you know a, not even a one bedroom suite it would give you a studio apartment uh, that's you know if you laid out enough big areas for meeting rooms and stuff like that so I don't think it'll be a quintillion but um, Why do I even bother with these uh, calculations? There are a lot of Reformed people, Chilton included, who mock anyone who wants to try to figure out the population based on on, uh, uh, calculations. But there's a long history of this going back to the early church. And as you know, I'm much more literal in my approach to Revelation than even dispensationalists are. And I think there is something very, very significant. By the way, dispensationalists, even though they try to approach things literally, they can't quite approach this too literally because it gives them heartburn. So there are some of them who say, no, it's not even going to come to Earth. It's going to be hovering sort of like a Borg cube. Uh, (laughs) It'll be hovering over the planet, only much larger out there. But it's fun to see the commentaries who try to get it to fit into Israel do gymnastics and say, well, it must be smaller in some way. Uh, So, for example, some claim that this is not the length, this is actually the measurement of the, um, the, the cubic measurement of the whole city. And so you have to divide it by four to come up with a true length, and the true length would be 350 miles long. Well, even 350 miles long, they've got to fit it out in the wilderness somewhere. They can't get it into Israel. And it still goes about 100 miles above the International Space Station. So some of them say, hey, it is a space station. It's just going to be orbiting, maybe it will be like a moon, uh, orbiting the earth. But most dispensationalists are forced by the text and the vast majority of commentators throughout history say no this has to be on the earth because they're coming in and out onto the planet from that city and secondly it has to be one length is 12,000 stadia and then the height is another 12,000 the width is another 12,000 okay so I'm, I'm just saying that and seeing it as a cube and it's roughly 12,000, 12,000 by 12,000, has a history going back uh, to the early church. For example, uh, Andrew of Caesarea treats it this way. He says it was a cube to symbolize the fact that the the bride is very um, stable, the stability of the bride. Now, some people say it would be even more stable if it was a pyramid, and they want it to be a pyramid because they don't want so many people to fit into it. They think that's just not too many. But the text, commentators uh, point out, it absolutely forces you to say it's a cube. It cannot be a pyramid. Anyway, Andrew of Caesarea says the 12,000 symbolizes the immense number of saints who will comprise the bride like the grains of sand on the seashore, 12 gates, 12 foundations, shows the completeness, unity of the bride. And he he talks about other symbols uh, showing how this merges heaven with earth. Now back to the measurements, I gave an introduction to these measurements last week using the smallest estimated size of a stadion which is the singular for a stadia and unfortunately there is no agreement on the size of the stadion. If you use the Egyptian and Phoenician measure of 229 yards per stadion uh, this would be 1561 miles long 1561 miles high By the way, that was a very widely used measurement. That's probably the correct one, and most commentators go with that. They round it down to 1,500 miles, but if you use the Babylonian measure of 214 yards, then it would be 1,459 miles long. And if you use the old Greek measure of 202 yards, it would be 1,377 miles or almost 1,400 miles. So if you read in your study Bibles or in commentators, they'll say, well, it's approximately 1,400 miles, or it's approximately 15. The majority say it's approximately 1,500 uh, miles wide. So to be conservative, last week I used the smallest Greek measure of approximately 1,400 miles used by Harold Mayer, and he showed how even this is astronomically huge even on the smallest measure. Uh, More than half of the city's stories would loom above our atmosphere and extend out into outer space. Now, if it's the largest size, you'd have to add an additional 161 miles to everything I talked about last week. And as to the amount of land that it would cover, I've put a couple of maps into your outline to show the massive size. If you put a 1,500-mile square over the Middle East, with the center being the old Jerusalem, You'll see it completely covers Israel and Egypt and a whole bunch of other countries. And that just doesn't work because there's going to be an Israel and there's going to be an Egypt. There's going to be these countries that are present. So you can see the map there. It covers all of Georgia, Armenia, Greece, Turkey, Iraq, most of Egypt and Saudi Arabia, the Mediterranean, the Red Sea, much of Iran, Bulgaria, the Persian Gulf, the Caspian Sea, and the Black Sea. So as far as I'm concerned, that completely rules this coming down in history, because Isaiah 19 very clearly says there's going to be vast areas in Egypt and Israel and Assyria, and they're going to have trade, and they're going to have roads between them. Well, this would obliterate those countries. It would be sitting smack dab on top of those countries. So this has to be in eternity, and it's probably going to be on a much larger earth. Now, placed over the map of the United States, it covers almost two-thirds of the states. Uh, Those who uh, do more precise calculations say it's almost 60% of the continental United States. Now, to give you a bit of an idea of the height, I've put two additional diagrams of the New Jerusalem in your outline. One has a proportional cube, okay, sitting on top of the planet. And notice on that cube, each side is fifteen hundred miles, but you'll notice that it's got a figure of 2,121 miles going from corner to corner. And it was Jeff Krutz who actually brought this to my attention. He was quickly using his calculator or something in a service last week. And he said, Phil, you can fit the whole new Jerusalem right inside of the moon and it would almost touch the corners would almost touch the outside. Well if you used the largest side, the corners would actually stick outside. Of that so it's a pretty tall and huge city well critics use the physical laws of science to show how any view of a literal city would be impossible the weight alone uh, would collapse the lower parts of the structure uh, it would mess up the earth in a number of ways using the smallest reasonable figure of 1,400 miles uh, one critic said at 1,400 miles high it would be over one sixth the diameter of the earth We don't know how massive it would be, but something that big resting on one side of the earth would move the earth's center of gravity well away from its current center of gravity, which is roughly the same as the center of the spheroid of the earth. This offset center of gravity would cause the whole earth to wobble and shake in its rotation like an off-balance washing machine. The results would be catastrophic. Such a large mass added to the earth's mass would also throw the earth out of its current orbit around the sun. If a violently off-kilter and shaking earth didn't destroy all higher life forms on earth, getting thrown out of its orbit would finish the job. So he would say, it can't be a real city. Okay, this is an image of the bride of Christ. Now what most of these people are forgetting is that the new Jerusalem is already in existence. It's in heaven. And we are, as Hebrews says, we are looking forward to being in this new Jerusalem uh, in heaven. Does it have similarity? It's in another dimension, and it may have some similarities to our dimension, but it's going to be different. It'll be different, and thus the word "like" in verse 11, like jasper stone. I mean, what earthly jasper is crystal clear? What earthly gold is crystal clear, like the gold that you see in verse 21? So I think these are being this building is being made with glorified materials. And as to the laws of physics, who is to say that the same laws of physics are going to be functioning in the new heavens and the new earth? It may be, or maybe similar laws, but God could have done something entirely different. Just think about Christ's body. He had a glorified, it was the same body that came out of the grave, but it was glorified, so he was able to pass right through locked doors. So when you're factoring in glorified materials, glorified buildings, glorified planets, glorified bodies, I don't think they're going to be subject to the same things that bodies are subject to down here below. Um, Since it's a city in heaven, it's obviously a glorified structure, not a structure subject to decay like ours are. So I just outright reject all of the objections that are based on physics, and there's a lot out there if you read them. I've often wondered how on earth are people going to travel outside of this city? Let's say that you're... Apartments right smack dab in the middle. You got 750 miles to go to the outside, and another is 750 miles to go down to the first floor. I mean, it'd take you weeks to travel to the outside, and how many more days? Well, maybe days to travel to the outside. 750 miles, you could do it in two days if you travel real fast, uh, and then a really fast elevator to the bottom. Well, I say, you know what? God can make this transportation any way that he wants. Maybe he'll allow us to teleport. Who knows? Maybe our bodies, some people speculate our bodies will not be subject to gravity. But we do know this. God will have the transportation figured out, and it will be cool. <laughs> Whatever transportation he has, it's going to be cool. And it's not going to be burdensome, because Revelation's already said everything tedious, everything burdensome is going to be done away with. And so he's going to come up with something that's going to be fun to be on. But the enormous size of the city hints that we are not even remotely near the end of history. There may well be 100,000 years of history left on earth. Why do I say that? And this is shocking to a lot of people because they've been so used to hearing of the imminency doctrine, which I utterly reject and the ancient church utterly rejected. The early church father, Andrew of Caesarea, believed that the dimensions of the city give us hints as to how many people will be saved. And I agree, and there are a number of commentators that agree. After all, Jesus said that he was going to prepare a place for his people. He wasn't going to stick them into something that was already existing and made for another purpose. No, he tailor-made the New Jerusalem to fit his people. So how many people could fit into this city? Depends on if you use the lowest figure of 1,400 miles or the highest figure of 1,561 miles long and high. If we round down from 1,561 to 1,500 miles, and this is what, again, most commentators do, it gives you a hint, and it's only a hint, but it gives you a hint as to the size of the population. If you made each floor 30 feet high you would have 264,000 floors, each of which would have 1,440,000,000 acres. So it would be 1.4 trillion acres on each floor. If you were to give each resident a 30,000-square-foot mansion, which is about the size of Mark Wahlberg's mega-mansion, then there would be well over 2 trillion mansions on each floor. Now multiply that times 264,000 floors, and you'll have to show me if your calculators can do that, because my calculators can. I had to go online for the big calculators. And it came out to 552 quadrillion people, each of whom would have a 30,000-foot mansion with 30-foot vaulted ceilings. Now, how long would it take for there to be 552 quadrillion people to have existed? Standard estimates of the total number of people who have lived on the planet uh, range between 90 to 110 billion. I don't know how they can come up with these figures, but there's there is an official population reference bureau that does these calculations all the time. The current, this year, it always changes, this year it's 108 billion, they say. And they estimate based on, uh, they think, 50,000 years that humans have been on the earth. Well, I think that's grossly exaggerated. I think we've only been here 6,000 years, but let's use their, their big estimate the number of people that could fit in the New Jerusalem with a 30,000 square foot mansion is more than 5 million times the total number of people who have ever lived so you take the total number of people who have ever lived multiply it by 5 million and you'll have the number of mansions that could fit in this city I mean it gives you a little bit of a feel for why I believe we've got a lot more history now just for fun if a 30,000-square-foot mansion's not big enough for you, let's give each person a 250,000-square-foot mansion. That's almost twice as big as the Biltmore Estate, 3.6 times bigger than the Hearst Castle, 3.8 times bigger than Donald Trump's biggest mansion, and more than 20 times bigger than most of the popular mansions out there. Okay? So this is, this is a huge, huge mansion you're going to get. Even with every individual getting that size of a mansion, the city could house 198.7 trillion people. Okay? Trillion's a lot. It's a 1,000 billion. 198.7 trillion is staggering, and yet it is very possible that the population will be much greater than that. So it gives you a little bit of perspective when you consider that up until now, the majority of people have been lost, but many post-millennials believe that At the end of history, when you count up all of the elect and all of those who are non-elect, the elect will far, far outnumber the non-elect. And by the way, none of these numbers that people calculate even take into consideration uh, miscarriages that happen, you know, sometimes before women even know that they're pregnant, you know, within two or three days, spontaneous uh, miscarriages. Uh, that would enormously add to the population of the New Jerusalem, but I don't know how you would calculate that. But anyway, the size of the city seems to indicate it has been designed for far more people than have ever existed in the world. Now, I read uh, an article by a scientist who is a pessimillennialist. And he just cannot believe that this many people will be saved. It's just impossible. He thinks it would be very generous to say that there will be 20 billion people who are saved and will inhabit the new Jerusalem. But he also realizes the new Jerusalem was built specifically to house all of these people. So he has to give a ginormous mansion to these people. He estimates that each occupant would need to receive 40 billion cubic feet of living space. That's each person living in a 14-square-mile house with a 100-foot ceiling. Now, we're getting a little bit ridiculous in our calculations just in order to maintain our pessimillennialism. Yet even with the 40 billion cubic feet of living space for each person, there would still be far more people in the New Jerusalem than anyone has ever estimated have been saved. Those accommodations would house three times the current population of planet Earth. Now one dreamer thought even that's too many people for heaven, so he divided the city into only 15 floors with each floor being 100 miles high. Now with a 100 mile high ceiling, he said the atmosphere would be so thick when you looked up you'd see blue sky, And you'd have your own ecosystem on each floor with rain and forests and horse trails and pastures you'd have all kinds of cool things that were laid out there and um, so let's be even more generous than he does by the way he said if you put Mount Everest on there there would still be another 94.5 miles above Mount Everest before you hit the ceiling so it's a pretty generous space for this mansion right that he's giving Now, assuming that half of the floor was left for forests, meadows, and other non-residential land, that would leave 720 million acres on each floor for residential purposes. Assuming a 6,000-square-foot house with a one-acre lot, there would still be 10.8 billion houses on even that ridiculous scenario. Far more houses than there are currently people living on Earth today. I cannot imagine that each floor is gonna be hundred miles high but <laughs> you have to be the ultimate eschatological pessimist to come up with a plan like that and yet here's the point even with a plan like that there are not enough people who have been saved yet for Jesus to end history there still are many more that need to be saved Do you get the point even though no one knows knows how many elect will be in the New Jerusalem even the most bizarre and wild-eyed theories of how spacious each property will be mandates that far more people need to get saved before the end of history and I think that these uh, these measurements are not only a rebuke to pessimistic eschatologies they are a rebuke to my own previous optimistic eschatology I don't think we're nearly optimistic enough The New Jerusalem is designed for such vast numbers that the early church father, Andrew of Caesarea, actually thought that there might literally be as many people saved as there are grains of sand in the world, the whole world. Now I question that. Well I don't even question it, I know he's wrong. Because um, uh, scientists have roughly estimated, and it could only be a rough estimate, right, that there are 7.5 quintillion grains of sand on the beaches and deserts of the world, and that would be seven and a half times more than could comfortably fit into the New Jerusalem. So, rule that out. Now, in a sense, these calculations are ridiculous. Uh, But I hope that they at least illustrate how unbelievably generous God's grace really is. Yes, His wrath against the reprobate is amazing, but His grace is even more astounding now the last thing I'll mention today is that the presence of walls when no walls are needed and gates when no gates are shut, shows two things first it shows that we're in eternity when there is no sin no evil people to threaten the city and secondly it shows that those gates and walls were once needed okay verse 25 says her gates will absolutely not be closed by day and no night will exist there well that means they're never closed, never closed. So if you don't need the gates, why are they there? And we won't need walls to keep the enemy out, so why does verse 17 describe its measurement? Verse 17 says, and he measured her wall, 144 cubits, the measure of a man which is of an angel. Well, we've already seen that this chapter occurs in eternity, right after judgment day, but it's eternity's perspective of what has already happened in history it's looking back on what's been accomplished so the question is when did jesus build the new jerusalem it's not going to be built in the future in the first century it is clearly already being built and uh, according to hebrews uh, it's about to come so logic tells you it was being built between 80 30 and 80 70. well that explains why walls and gates were needed Gates and walls speak of protection from the attacks of evil beings like demons. In Revelation 12 we saw a long protracted war between Michael and his angels and Satan and his angels and Satan was cast out of heaven and he no longer had access to heaven. What made it so that he could no longer have access to heaven? Well maybe these walls and gates were a part of keeping them out and each of these gates had angels that were stationed at them. Why are the gates no longer shut? Because we're now in eternity, there's no danger. Walls and gates remain, and they'll perhaps have other functions, such as decoration. They're beautiful. Beautiful walls, beautiful gates. It may be a reminder of the covenant. But he emphasizes that they absolutely will not be closed, because closing implies exclusion. And all who were to be excluded from the New Jerusalem are already in hell. And since there's nothing to exclude from the New Jerusalem, gates are left open. But commentators have been puzzled over the disproportionate size of the walls to the city. In fact, two commentaries say it's grossly disproportionate. I disagree. I think it's a perfect symbolism. Uh, The Bible had three cubits. One was 18 inches, or five palms. uh, And another was 21.6 inches, or six palms. And the royal cubit was 25.2 inches, or seven palms. Now, I know exactly which cubit was used, because since Ezekiel is the only other place in the Bible where you've got an angel referred to who measures with a reed, like we see in verse 15, marks off cubits with that measuring reed, and since the angel is referred to as a man, because in the vision he looked to Ezekiel like he was a man, and yet the vision explains to him, hey, it's actually not a man, it's really an angel, I think that this is directing us to the Ezekiel cubit for the measure. It says, and he measured her wall, 144 cubits, the measure of a man, which is of an angel. Well, the measure of a man, which is of an angel, in Ezekiel was the longer cubit of seven palms. And I won't get into it, but he explicitly lays that out in Ezekiel. So now we know exactly how tall this wall was. The wall is 302.4 feet now, if you read in commentaries, you'll see lower estimates than that. But if he was using the measure of Ezekiel, it has to be 302.4 feet. And by the way, that may explain also why uh, a longer stadium was used. Now, to you, a 302-foot-tall t- wall may seem like a ginormous wall. But in comparison to the 1,500-mile-high city... is almost non-existent it's extremely small and so the question is why to me it signals the relative time needed by both the walls would be needed for its time in history which perhaps will be in the hundreds of thousands of years but the city will be occupied for eternity so the time that protection was needed yes it's long but it is disproportionate to the eternal safety and bliss that we will experience After history is done, the wall will simply be a fond reminder of God's loving protection of his people in history. Now one other point that needs to be made is that this wall includes all people, whereas the walls of Jerusalem and the Old Temple excluded. Now Beale points out that this is a cube, the only other cube in the Bible is the Holy of Holies, and here in this chapter he's likening the whole city of Jerusalem to the Holy of Holies in the Temple. Now, here's the thing. In the Old Testament, the only person who could go into the Holy of Holies was the high priest. Now, it's the bride, the whole bride, that consists of the Holy of Holies. Whereas a wall separated Jews from Gentiles in the temple, verse 24 indicates that Gentiles will inhabit the new Jerusalem. Whereas the old Jerusalem had a wall to keep out invaders, this wall is so gorgeous, it beckons the nations to enter. Beal says, the Solomonic temple, the second temple before Herod, and the temple of Ezekiel 40 through 48 were divided by a wall into inner and outer courts. In contrast, there will be only one wall in the New Jerusalem, and it will surround the entire city, thus stressing the unity of the city's inhabitants with one another and with God. That's all I'll say. All of these symbols will be fulfilled in their fullest measure in eternity. But we should long for more and more of that fulfillment today. And we should also love what God loves. To neglect or to malign the bride of Jesus Christ, as so many people do in the church today, or many Christians do, is to disrespect and to malign the church's husband. But to agree with Jesus and working towards the church's purification, her holiness, her unity, her protection, and all of the other things symbolized here, honors Him greatly. So may we love Zion and seek her welfare. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these descriptions of the glories of heaven, and I pray that we would find our hearts thankful to you for all that you have prepared for us, thankful to you for your generosity. Uh, you are inviting such vast multitudes to inhabit that, uh, that uh, great city, and I pray that as we uh, continue uh, next week contemplating uh, some of these glories of heaven, that our hearts would melt in love to you and gratitude for all that you have done. Uh, We thank you and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.